We will hear argument first this morning in case 2472, Holly Frontier Cheyenne Refining versus Renewable Fuels Association. Mr. Keisler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The statute establishing the Renewable Fuel Standard exempted all small refineries from its requirements for the first years of the program and authorizes them individually to seek extensions of that exemption at any time based on hardship. The question here is whether it prohibits EPA from granting a hardship exemption to a small refinery that hasn't been continuously exempt for all prior years. Respondents claim it does. Under their view, a small refinery can receive exemptions indefinitely, but only if it's never able to comply without hardship. If there's even one year in which it can comply without hardship, it's then disqualified for all future years. Nothing in the statute's text imposes this unique prohibition. Respondents' argument rests on the word extension, which they contend should be read temporarily here to mean an increase in a length of time. But even if extension is read in its temporal sense, that does not require continuity. No dictionary defines extension to require continuity, and Congress has used the term elsewhere when it's specifically authorizing the temporal resumption of a benefit after a lapse. And where Congress has wanted to limit the term in the way respondents urge, it's added limiting words, like successive or consecutive, which it didn't do here. A continuity requirement would also be contrary to this statute's purposes. The statutory design is to impose burdens that escalate dramatically over time. As the Department of Energy explained in 2011, some small refineries will face inherent and disproportionate hardships that will only arise or that will increase as those mandates grow. Driving those small refineries out of the market would undermine the statute's energy independence goals, and that's one of the reasons Congress authorized them to petition at any time based on hardship. I welcome the Court's questions. Uh, Mr. Keisler, um, under your reading, uh, which extend means to grant, you know, you extend an offer or extend condolences, um, could an entirely new refinery apply for uh, an extension to it uh, of a hardship, hardship exemption? In other words, coming onto the scene for the first time, and they would, under your view, I think, have to ask for an extension? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. If the court adopted the make available meaning of extension, then yes, a completely new refinery that came into an existence after the initial period would still be able to seek an extension of the exemption. But the court could also construe extension in the temporal sense without requiring continuity. And in that case, it's certainly arguable that a new entrant would not be able to get an extension of the initial exemption because it didn't have one without there being any requirement that the extensions have been continuously enjoyed by others. Well, which of those two readings of extension, I guess, each one of which you embrace, do you think is the right one? If we were forced to choose, Your Honor, we would acknowledge that reading extension in that temporal sense without continuity would enable the court to avoid having to decide whether this is one of those instances in which the same word has different meanings within the same statute. And so for that reason, perhaps, that might be a preferred reading. But even in that circumstance, our key point would be that even the temporal meaning of extension does not require continuity. Congress has used it in exactly the other way multiple times, and no dictionary says that the temporal meaning of extension requires continuity. 
Well, it seems like you're sort of any port in the storm uh, uh, reading of this statute, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that's the strongest position. Uh, well, then, Your Honor, we would be happy to rely on the other construction of extension as well, because extension is often used when there is some pre-existing um, stat separately authorized benefit, and it is being extended or made available to a different setting or time period or set of recipients. Just like in 2015, when Congress enacted what it called an extension of Privacy Act remedies to citizens of certain foreign countries. It is a word that Congress often uses when it is enlarging or extending the scope of a pre-existing benefit. And we'd, of course, be happy with that reading here as well. Our principal point is that there is no basis under either reading to impute a continuity requirement to the word. So this really is uh, a freestanding exemption, and uh, uh, in your view. And I wonder, um, I'm not saying it's an uh, inconceivable construction, uh, but is this the what you might expect if Congress were going to uh, provide a freestanding exemption, that they would do it in this sort of roundabout way? I don't think it's all that roundabout, Mr. Chief Justice. First of all, in subparagraph B3, that is exactly how Congress referred to this. It referred to the same petition and the same relief as simply a hardship exemption. It omitted the word extension entirely, which we think weighs strongly against respondents' effort to ascribe such a transformative meaning to that single word. In addition, this is a statute in which the obligations, as I said, intensify dramatically over time, and it seems implausible to think that Congress meant that merely being able to comply for one year in the early years of the program would mean that a small refinery would never warrant hardship relief ever again. Counsel, I, I, I think you would agree that there's no Chevron deference issue here because the agency has changed its position. Is that right? Well, we don't agree with that, Your Honor, although, of course, we think the statute should be construed the way we urge without regard to Chevron. We do think that there is deference here because EPA adopted this interpretation in a notice and comment rulemaking in 2014, and it hasn't changed that rule. Well, the agency doesn't uh, abide by the same position. Are you saying just it didn't do that through notice and comment? Well, that's part of it, Your Honor, but it's also the fact that these are agency adjudications. We filed our petitions under the existing rule, and that rule has the force of law if it's lawful. And under Chevron, it's lawful if it either implements the clearly expressed intent of Congress or reasonably resolves statutory ambiguities. Thank you, you, Counsel. Uh, Justice Thomas? Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Mr. Uh, Keisler, the um, Chief Justice has covered most of the ground I was interested in, but I am interested in this. Um, For you to prevail, uh, would your reading have to be the more normal reading of uh, extension or simply one one possible reading of, of the word extension? I think I would perhaps put it in a third way, Justice Thomas. Which is we think it is the best reading of the word in the context of this particular statute, both the other text, like the words at any time, and the statutory purposes I alluded to anyway uh, earlier. Even if there was some tiebreaker needed, we would then say that, as I just indicated, we think Chevron deference should be accorded to the earlier 2014 rulemaking. But we don't rely on that because we think we are urging the best reading of the statute. 
This seems a little bit uh, odd to think of an extension uh, for something that has already terminated. Uh, you know, if uh, I were to lose, uh, if my electricity is turned off uh, because I failed to pay a bill, and uh, then I uh, paid it, or uh, is that, or I get a reprieve? Is that an extension, or is that a grace period? It just seems rather odd to read it that way. I think this is a word, Justice Thomas, that's highly sensitive to context, and I think there are certainly some contexts, like the one you just mentioned, in which one wouldn't think of what we're talking about as an extension. Um, but here, in the context of government benefits that lapse and then resume, Congress has specifically used the word extension to describe a resumption after a lapse. It did so twice, because this has been happening recently in light of the pandemic, where Congress has resurrected benefit programs that had previously lapsed, in one case more than six years ago. And in each of those cases that we describe in our brief, Congress labeled the resumption of a program that had been lapsed and unavailable, in one case for a period of years, as an extension of that program. So we think the context to focus on here is the one in which Congress is acting on benefit programs that have lapsed. And there, Congress has said, benefits resumed after a lapse can be an extension. In addition, as I indicated, where it has wanted to limit the word extension to be only continuous, it has felt the need to add words like consecutive or successive, consecutive extensions or extensions for successive periods. And under respondents' view, all of the many statutes that talk about extensions for successive or consecutive periods, the words are all surplusage. And along that line, uh, how much weight do you uh, put on the, uh, on the phrase uh, may at any time? I think it's a very important phrase, Your Honor. That is the broadest possible temporal language. And it is inconsistent, we think, with any understanding of subparagraph B that treats it as transitional or temporary or designed to sunset. Subparagraph A is captioned temporary. Subparagraph A is filled with time limits and deadlines. But Congress then broke this petition process out into a separate subparagraph B, lacking the word temporary, lacking all those temporal words, and including the broadest possible temporal language at any time. And we think what that signifies, Your Honor, is that these two subparagraphs are dealing with two different periods. Subparagraph A with the initial periods of the program in which initial broad relief was applied to everybody, and subparagraph B reserving the right to give relief to individuals with hardship uh, as the demands of the statute ratchet up. Thank you. Justice Breyer? Good um, morning. The, the um, other argument that was, in, I believe, is in the lower court and that the respondents make is Congress had a good reason for making this a single uh, connected uh, exemption. They wanted to phase out the exemptions over time. And gradually, if this exemption would end as it would or become narrow under their interpretation, it would, there would be fewer and fewer companies that were exempt. And that would mean more and more would have to figure out some way of making do with the program. And that's what they wanted. Well, what's your response? 
Well, those are the two competing narratives of what is going on here, Justice Breyer. We have said the provision is meant as a safety valve for when hardship occurs as the demands of the program ratchet up. Our friends on the other side say it was supposed to be a funnel, uh, one which actually would funnel some small refineries out of the market to the extent that they couldn't uh, comply. And we think there are several reasons why the safety valve and not the funnel metaphor is right here. First of all, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is a statute in which the burdens escalate over time and the petition is supposed to be based on hardship. It seems implausible to think that Congress would assume that an early ability for a year to comply would mean there would be no need in the future. Second, the purposes of the statute are all served by our interpretation, because Congress wanted both to ensure that the volume requirements of blended fuel are met and that small refineries are protected. And EPA now has an approach in which it will slightly increase the applicable percentage to take account for the projected small refinery exemptions in the next year. That means that every goal gets served. The small refineries get protected and the statutory volumes all get blended. But conversely, if the respondent's interpretation is adopted, you will force some small refineries out of the market, which is a kind of contraction of refining capacity that doesn't serve Congress's energy independence goals, but you wouldn't get a single drop of additional fuel blended. And finally, the anomalies I referred to in my opening statement, similarly situated refineries, both facing identical hardship, get treated oppositely because one of them, several years ago, when the statutory demands were lighter, is able, was able to comply. Or the refinery that is never able to comply without hardship gets exemptions indefinitely, because they're continuous. But the refinery that occasionally can comply is driven out. None of that, we think, commends uh, respondents' view of this statute. We think it is a safety valve and not a funnel. Thank you. Justice Alito? Uh, Mr. Keisler, you and uh, the um, and respondents uh, have different accounts of the purpose of the act, but it's always difficult to uh, interpret an act in light of its purposes. So, because acts serve multiple purposes, so let's put that aside and look at the text. Uh, you're right; extension can mean two different things. It can mean what you think it means. It can mean what respondents think it means. I don't know whether that's a wash, but both of those are possible. The best textual hook I think you have is the at-any-time argument, but there are some other accounts of the role that that's supposed to play, the role that it plays, and I'd appreciate it if you would address those. One is that it meant to it meant to indicate that um, a party can a, a small refinery can seek an extension after uh, the uh, the finding that's made on November thirtieth. Uh, why isn't that a uh, plausible explanation of its meaning? Well, I think that is certainly one scenario, Justice Alito, in which it would be applied. But it is a very narrow and specific 
um, focus and limitation for the broadest possible temporal language possible. You know, the Tenth Circuit said that, well, it says you can file it at any time, but that doesn't mean it can be granted at any time. Yeah, but I know. That's not, let's put that one aside. But what about the, the November 30 deadline? So it's, it's narrow, but it's a possible explanation. Well, I don't think it's a full and sufficient explanation, though, because under the Court of Appeals view, the ability to file a petition that can be granted ceases once a small refinery has had one good year. That's not at any time. So it's not simply that respondents have a view that attributes only a very narrow purpose to the broadest possible language. It also cuts out some obvious applications of that language when Congress has said these petitions can be filed at any time based on hardship. Well, let me come back to the, the question you were talking about with the, with the Chief Justice, and that is whether a, uh, a small refinery that did not get an exemption under A could ask for a hardship exemption under B. Um, how is that possible? Because... Uh, uh, the first part of B says a small refinery may at any time petition the administrator for an extension of the exemption under subparagraph A. So why doesn't that mean that the refinery must have had one under A in order to ask for one under B? I think that is one reading, Justice Alito, but not the only necessary reading. If it were that reading all of the refineries here would still get the extension because they all had the initial exemption. But with respect to the specific question, if one reads extension as make available, the way we talk about extensions of credit or extensions of other government benefits, then you wouldn't need to have had an exemption under subparagraph A to get an extension of that exemption because, as I mentioned earlier, extension is often used when there's a pre-existing benefit that is then being uh, enlarged with the scope being provided to some new set or new setting. And here, what that phrase would mean is that the terms of the exemption in subparagraph A, which is where it's defined as the requirements of paragraph 2 shall not apply, the terms of the exemption in subparagraph A are being extended to the petitioning small refinery. What do you think is this? Suppose you're right uh, uh, that um, the... um, the, the, the exemptions don't have to be uh, uh, continuous. What do you think is the standard that the EPA is to apply under B? I, I don't really see any standard. To what is this? To what degree is this purely a matter of EPA discretion? I think it is limited, Your Honor, by phrases like disproportionate economic hardship. Disproportionate in particular requires the EPA to find that the small refiner in question is experiencing some type of disadvantage or hardship that is distinct from simply what anybody else in the market might be experiencing. And the reason Congress established these separate provisions is that it understood that small refineries have several inherent and structural disadvantages that set them apart and that can, in certain circumstances, give rise to a level of hardship from compliance here that far exceeds those of their larger competitors. Thank you. Justice Sotomayor? Counsel, just for me to be sure or clear, I thought the circuit below disagreed with your interpretation of what economic hardship means. I thought the circuit below thought 
that it meant you had to have a particular hardship relating to um, blending the fuels or buying the credits. Am I wrong about that? No, you're right, Justice Sotomayor. The, the lower court felt that the EPA had not applied a strict enough causation standard because it took into account both the fact that the market was experiencing a difficult year combined with the individual circumstances of the small refinery and the cost it had to bear in compliance so with your, the statute. So your answer to Justice Alito basically um, means that there's still a fight. There's still a fight. There's still a dispute going on below. Yes, Your Honor. There's going to have to be a remand, even if we prevail here, so that the other issues raised by the Tenth Circuit can be addressed by EPA. But if the Tenth Circuit is affirmed, there'll be no remand because we'll just be statutorily foreclosed from relief. Now, secondly, you um, keep speaking about how Congress has acted in other statutes, other relief statutes that it's given at different times. But let's look at this particular one. Is there any use of the word extension anywhere in this sta- elsewhere in this statute that doesn't have a temporal continuity meaning? Yes, Justice Sotomayor. Wh- what other section besides the one that- at issue? Section 07E3, which we address in footnote 7 of our reply brief. That's the situation in which if there's a feedstock disruption, EPA can waive certain requirements for up to 60 days. And then E703 says that in the event that disruption is continuing beyond the expiration of that period, it can be extended for up to another additional 60 days. Uh, EPA certainly doesn't have to make the determination that it is continuing beyond the initial 60-day period after it's expired, but it certainly can, and if it did, the extension would be non-continuous. The other uses of extension in this statute, I would acknowledge, Justice Sotomayor, are continuous, but they're continuous because of features about those provisions, because they all involve extensions of an effective date when some requirement will first take effect. And, of course, if an effective date is extended, it has to be continuous because otherwise it wouldn't work. Well, counsel, I guess my biggest problem is that you say in context we should read this differently, and you're talking about the two interpretations, the competing interpretations of what the purpose might be of this statute. But doesn't the use of the word temporary in the provision at issue suggests the other side's reading more than yours? I don't think so, Your Honor, because as, as you just said, temporary is in the other provision, in subparagraph A. And subparagraph B not only lacks that word, it says the opposite. It says at any time. And but I would just I'm, add... The problem is that B defines what A... It defines A, and A is where you get the extension at all. Yes, but I don't think that means that subparagraph B carries over with it every aspect of subparagraph A. For example, the extensions are going to be of different duration. There are all sorts of different terms about when they will be provided and and what conditions will be appended to them. So I I think we understand subparagraph B as linked to subparagraph A in some respects and D-linked in others. It's linked because it is talking about the same relief, the same defined exemption from the requirements of subparagraph 2. But it is D-linked because it's not temporary. It's at any time. One last question. 
on your alternative reading, the one that you suggested to the Chief Justice, um, if we were to accept that extension is not, doesn't require continuity, wouldn't that result in the, uh, and then I think you acknowledge that small refineries that came into the scene after 2006 could never receive an exemption, correct? Under that reading, yes, Your Honor. So under that reading, basically it is a sunset reading of this provision. Well, I don't think it's a sunset because the provision would continue to be available to everyone who was there when the program started. But yes, if you newly came into existence as a small refinery, you would be ineligible. And for what it's worth, EPA in 2016 suggested one reason why that might be so. It rejected a continuity requirement, but it did say that new entrants shouldn't be able to get an extension. And they said that was because a new entrant comes into the world knowing this program exists. And, and can have planned for it rather than one who had it foisted upon it. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Kagan? Good morning, Mr. Keisler. Um, in, th- in thinking about the ordinary meaning of um, this word, extension, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if you would comment on, on this hypothetical. Suppose that I uh, rented an apartment five years ago and I rented it for a year and then I decided to give it up. And uh, five years later, I'm now really tired of where I'm living now, and I want to move back. And I call the landlord and say, I'd like an extension of my lease. What would the landlord say? I think the landlord would scratch her head and think that's a very strange context in which to be using the word extension. I agree with that. Um, And that, I think, is like the government's examples of the hotel guests or the people parking their cars. I think those may have a different connotation in part because they involve rights of physical occupation and because you go away and you then come back, and we think of that as discontinuous. And that's why we think the much more apt context here is how Congress has used the word in the context of government benefits and programs that existed, lapsed, and resume. Well, Mr. Kaiser, I mean, let's think about it in this particular context. So there's a small refinery, and, and let's say that its initial exemption ended in 2011. And since then, it's been able to meet its renewable fuel obligations and indeed continues to do so for, uh, for decades. And then in the year, you know, 2040, 30 years later, it runs into problems and it, it files a hardship petition. And you're saying that in this context, it's any more an ordinary use of the word extension to say that after that 30-year lapse, uh, the small refinery gets its its extension? We would, Your Honor. And while that's an extreme example, we think it is still more in keeping with the statutory purposes and text to permit the small refinery, in your honor's example, to petition at any time. I mean, I, I, I guess I, the- I understand your argument about purpose, but I'm just trying to focus on the text here. And and I, I guess, I don't know, explain that, that textual analysis to me. Well, I think it's a couple of things, your honor. First of all, the text says at any time. And second of all, while the hypothetical is extreme, and I think, probably highly unlikely. Uh, It is, we think, no less extreme and much more contrary to the text and purpose to say that a refinery which had one good year in 2013 when the requirements of the program were so much more modest 
somehow is foreclosed in 2016 when it faces real hardship. From right, well, I understand your purpose argument, but I wouldn't think that that's a problem with the text. I mean, 2013, now it's 2016. That's not an extension. It's a resumption or a renewal or a something else. But it doesn't seem really like an extension. Well, I think it is an extension, Your Honor, in the same way that Congress has used extensions in the other contexts I've mentioned. And I think that is fortified here by the fact that this extension can be sought at any time and that the relief is described in paragraph B3 as simply a hardship exemption without even using the word extension at all. Which well, whatever thinking else- about that at any time language, uh, Mr. Kaiser, and, and Justice Alito talked about this too. And, you know, of course, that seems very general language, but... If you look at this um, provision, it's, it's you know it's essentially says, look, you can get your extension by way of this study, or then even if you're not identified in this study, you can petition for an extension at any time, and uh, and you can do that even after the EPA determines the upcoming year's obligations, and you can do it uh, even after a compliance year, so even after. The year goes through and and you haven't met it and you're kind of asking for a backwards uh, extension. Um, So that's a lot of at any time to give meaning to that to that phrase without distorting the word of extension, without distorting the meaning of the word extension, isn't it? Well, I think it is some applications of it any time, but it would also be the case that there would be some instances in which the refinery couldn't petition at any time, in particular, any time after it had one year in which it could comply without hardship. So I think Your Honor's interpretation permits them to do it at some times, but not at any times. And I suppose I would just quarrel with the premise of the question that interpreting at any time in its natural way requires a distortion of the meaning of the word extension. Extension is a word of many meanings, and it is frequently used in statutes the way we are recommending here. And you said frequently, but uh, I think your brief only really has these two COVID examples in it. I mean, if you had written this brief last year, you would have had no examples. Well, I think the pandemic is what's given rise to the need for Congress to resume programs that had previously let lapse. But it's not just those two examples, because we also think it's telling the negative examples we've described, in which when Congress has wanted to define extension so as to impose the continuity requirement, it's used additional words like successive or consecutive, which under respondents' reading are all surplusage. Thank you, Mr. Keisler. Justice Gorsuch? Good morning, Mr. Keisler. Um, you acknowledge in your briefs that uh, extensions under A22 are likely to be continuous during that first period of time, during the first five-year period. But um, you suggest that there is at least possible that they might not be, that there could be discontinuity there too, which would strengthen your argument that there could be discontinuity under B. I just want to explore that argument a little bit further. It's footnote six of your reply brief. How do we know that the definition of small refineries would be applied and measured for each calendar year during that first five-year period rather than only once when the initial exemption was required? Well, the question didn't come up, Justice Gorsuch, so I suppose we can't know for certain. But the way the statute defines small refinery, it says that you have to meet the 75,000 barrel daily throughput 
input for a calendar year. That at least suggests that it was talking about an individual year. So a refinery which started out as a small refinery and then in 2010 grew beyond that definition, we think wouldn't be a small refinery in 2010 and wouldn't have been entitled to the blanket exemption for that year. Do we know for a fact whether there, that ever happened, whether that uh, small refineries, um, uh, some qualified initially and then didn't qualify later or vice versa during that first five-year period? I don't know whether that happened during the first five-year period. I do know that refineries have grown and shrunk in general uh, beyond and within that definition during the broader life of the program. And has EPA treated them as small refineries during some periods and not others? Well, yes, because their current regulation, the one that was adopted in their 2014 eligibility rules, specifically says that the relevant year when a small refinery is applying is the year for which it's seeking the exemption and the immediately prior year. So it wouldn't matter under that regulation whether you were a larger refiner in earlier years. Has EPA disavowed that aspect of its regulation? Not that I know of, Your Honor. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, Good morning, Mr. Keisler. Uh, I want to uh, explore with you the relevance, as others have mentioned, of the at-any-time language and uh, just get your sense of uh, how that works here. Um, I guess what you're saying is the... uh, word extension uh, under your temporal extension argument could be read in one of two ways. Uh, It could be read to require continuous. It could be read to require, uh, to not require continuous uh, to get the temporal extension. And that we have to look at other clues in the text of the statute before we get to the purposes, and I'll get to that, but before we get to the uh, the purpose is we look at other clues in the text, and at any time is your hook. Uh, Justice Kagan and others have pointed out that you don't necessarily have to read it that way, and I just want to get your kind of full understanding of how at any time works here, and are there any other textual clues that would tell us whether to read extension as continuous or not requiring continuous? Yes, I, I thank you, Your Honor. I think at any time is best read as the most expansive possible temporal language, which is meant to ensure that as the demands of the program escalate, the safety valve will be there such that a small refinery that newly experiences hardship can obtain relief at any time. As I said, the, the contrary view really doesn't give at any time the broad meaning the text demands because it says that once you've had one good year, you're out. And that's not at any time. And that's why we say that the statute is designed for two different periods, subparagraph A for the temporary initial period and subparagraph B for when individualized relief is necessary thereafter. As to other textual clues, we think there are several. First of all, there is the contrast in the language between subparagraph A and subparagraph B. One that has subparagraph A that has temporary and all these time limits and deadlines, and subparagraph B, which has no temporal language other than the most expansive possible at any time. And second, there is the subparagraph 3 reference to a hardship exemption. This talismanic word extension is suddenly eliminated when Congress restates the same petition and the same relief, which at a minimum says respondents are giving much more weight to it than Congress did. And finally, 
other textual aspects of the statute. This is a statute which textually commands that the burdens will intensify year after year after year and textually says that relief is to be given based on hardship. And it does not seem a sensible reconciliation of all these provisions to say that that text and the underlying purpose it indicates would be served by kicking out a small refinery from eligibility for exemption because in one early year of the program, it was able to comply without hardship. And I understand your argument today to be focusing much more on the second argument in your brief, the temporal extension, than the first argument in your brief, which I think is probably wise. I understand why you did it in your brief, but is that correct? Do you think that's a, that second argument is actually a stronger argument for you? Um, well, I'm cognizant of the fact that the Chief Justice implied the opposite in his question, but I, I certainly think that the second argument avoids some of the trickier aspects of the statutory construction analysis, because at least means this isn't an example in which the court has to decide whether the word extension, which we admit is used temporarily in other provisions of the statute, is used in a different sense here. Then I want to just focus on how the separation of powers angle fits in with the real-world effects of how this program works. Uh, under the other side's reading, Congress has eliminated the possibility of an exemption if a small refinery ever in a particular year didn't get it. Under your view, it's not automatic that you get the exemption, right? It's up to EPA. Is that correct? That's correct. Subject, of course, to judicial review under the APA. Okay. And then how does it, uh, and I understand your further point to be, if, if a small refinery is having significant economic hardship in a particular year, the question is, did Congress want, this is more of a purpose argument, but did Congress want EPA to be able to give an exemption in that year, or did Congress want the small refineries to go out of business? Is that a fair way of uh, putting your argument there? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, what, last question. EPA doesn't usually set its renewable volume obligations on time. I had a lot of experience with that in my past uh, uh, judicial um, post. What, does that affect anything here? Um, I, I, I think only in the sense that it gives further credence for the reason that Congress would want these to be sought at any time, because not only does EPA frequently miss deadlines, it has sometimes been reversed for applying too strict a standard. And that means that if a small refinery, say in 2015 or 2016, didn't apply because EPA was applying too strict a standard in, dis in, uh, in understanding disproportionate economic hardship, and then it got reversed by a court, but all of those small refineries who didn't apply or were denied wrongly would then be out of the program as well. So it gives extraordinary weight to the artifacts of what can be quite random decisions by EPA. Thank Justice, you. Justice Barrett? Mr. Kaiser, do you think that a refinery's request for an extension has to have anything to do with the reasons why it received a prior exemption? In other words, even if there's not a required continuity of time, that there would be some sort of continuity of reason for the exemption? Well, I think certainly uh, any application that it made would have to be factually consistent with representations it made before, and it would be painting a picture over time of its economic circumstances. So in that sense, there would need to be consistency over time, but the actual application would focus on what the circumstances of the refinery are for the year for which it's seeking an exemption, we think. But if there are new circumstances, why wouldn't it be more natural to say that the, it, that the refinery is seeking a new exemption? Um, 
Well, if, if, if one were to take that view, then that would be the way paragraph B3 describes it, as simply a petition for a hardship exemption. But it is also within the meanings of extension that we have described an extension of the exemption under subparagraph A, because it is a lengthening of the overall period for which that exemption was in effect, and it is also extending in the make-available sense that exemption from A into this different setting of a new hardship petition. Justice Kagan gave you an example in which she posited seeking an exemption in the year 2030. You know, that this could, this at any time language could um, be stretched pretty far. But you know, under B, it relates back to this in A, the 2008 study that the EPA is supposed to conduct to determine whether compliance would create a disproportionate economic hardship on small refineries. If there's no continuity of time requirement, it seems that the temporal connection between that 2008 study and what might happen in 2015, 2020, 2030 gets pretty severed so that there's no connection. Can you say what role the 2008 study would play in your view? Yes, Justice Barrett. The 2008 study wasn't only about picking the 13 small refineries that were going to get the additional two-year extension. More broadly, it laid out a whole framework for understanding what the economics of the industry were, what the factors were that DOE at least would consider in deciding what to recommend, and it developed a whole scoring matrix based on capital requirements and financial condition and operating margins and things like that. That's what EPA and DOE look to from that study to determine exemptions going forward, and that would still be applicable in 2030 or 2040. And I would just add, if you did have an application filed in 2030 or 2040 for the year 2015, we do think at any time would mean that EPA couldn't just dismiss it as time-barred, but that doesn't mean EPA couldn't take into account the fact that it took 20 years to file that application in thinking about whether the representations were credible and whether the evidence was sufficient. Let me shift gears and see if there's another provision in the statute that might help you. Section 754507A allows the EPA to waive the RFP requirements upon a finding that they would severely harm the economy of a state or region. I could imagine a small refinery, you know, if it, if it were struggling or if it were going to be forced out of business, that that might harm the economy of a region. Is that a provision that might help you? Well, we think it's directed to a slightly different circumstance where there needs to be a broader reduction in the applicable requirement that applies to the industry as a whole when there would be harm to a region or or a state or the whole country. And I think it does help us some because it shows that Congress wanted to permit EPA to be sensitive to these market conditions. But the key thing is that the small refinery uh, provisions are the only ones that are geared to an individual company and its circumstances. So the broader authorities don't deal with that problem. And the reality is that you can administer a program more forcefully overall if you have the ability to exempt the smallest and most marginal players rather than letting the concern about driving them out of the market drive the whole program. Thank you, Mr. Keisler. A minute to wrap up, Mr. Keisler. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd just like to add that respondents' interpretation is especially implausible given the structure it would impose. My friends say that these provisions establish only a limited transitional period. But they've identified no other statute with a transition period remotely like 
what they propose here. There's no defined end date. There's no defined number of years. It instead ends on different customized dates for each small refinery, depending on when that refinery first happens to be able to comply, even if it can do so only for one year. That's what gives rise to all the anomalies of similarly situated refineries being treated differently. And it's especially implausible that the one and only statute which would structure a transition period in this way would be the one in which the demands are designed to increase substantially over time and which authorizes small refineries to seek relief at any time based on hardship. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Michel? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Under the key provision in this case, a small refinery may seek an extension of the exemption under subparagraph A. The meaning of that language is straightforward. If a small refinery has an exemption under subparagraph A, it can obtain an extension of that exemption from EPA. But if a small refinery no longer has the exemption, it cannot obtain an extension. EPA cannot grant something that does not exist. That is the ordinary, common-sense meaning of the statutory text. It gives the word extension the same meaning in adjacent, interconnected clauses, and it reflects the statute's objective to boost production of clean, renewable fuel while providing transition time for small refineries to comply. Although the government endorsed petitioners' alternative readings below, EPA now agrees that the Tenth Circuit correctly rejected them. Petitioners first propose that extension in the key provision means grant, but the statutory context forecloses that reading. The subject of the extension at issue, the exemption under subparagraph A, cannot be granted anew. It can only be lengthened in time. Petitioners alternatively contend that extension has a temporal meaning, but allows the extension of an expired exemption. That defies the ordinary meaning of extension. In common parlance, it would be awkward at best to seek an extension of something that has lapsed, especially if it were described as temporary. Simply put, if Congress wanted to adopt the generally available exemption petitioners advocate, it would not have enacted the scheme it did here. That scheme does not doom small refineries to failure. The vast majority of small refineries, including petitioners, have successfully complied with the RFS in many prior years. The statute creates flexibility to facilitate ongoing compliance, and other tools exist to address other challenges. But the Court of Appeals correctly construed the provision at issue here, and its decision should be affirmed. Uh, Mr. Michel, uh, this is a, a hypothetical rich case. Everyone's at different uh, scenarios where extend or extension is used in uh, different ways. You know, if, if you miss a deadline for a term paper, uh, it would be normal language for you to go into the professor and ask for an extension. Uh, you wouldn't go in and ask for a new deadline. Um, given all those hypotheticals, both along those lines and the other way, you're not arguing that this term is plain or unambiguous, right? The terms you used in your opening was straightforward and uh, ordinary, but it's, it's, it's not plain or unambiguous, is it? Yeah, Mr. Chief Justice, we're not arguing that it's unambiguous, uh, but we do think this is clearly the, the more ordinary use of the term in common parlance. And we think that you know, the court's decisions have said uh, it will apply the ordinary meaning of a statute unless there's a good reason not to, uh, and we think there's no good reason not to here. Your, your friend's interpretation uh, on the other side is one that would be uh, upheld, right, if Chevron deference applied? 
if Chevron applied, I think that would be correct, although I think there are, are a lot of reasons why Chevron doesn't apply, starting with the fact that the rule my friend cites does not actually contain any interpretation uh, of the question presented here. He, he's relying at most on an implicit assumption in the preamble to the rule that leads to a position EPA no longer has, and I don't think there's any case in which the court has granted Chevron deference to something like that. And you're not arguing for Chevron deference uh, going your way either, right? We are not, Mr. Chief Justice. So that uh, leaves us with the uh, obligation to look at all the available uh, evidence of congressional intent. I, I think that's right, uh, and I, I would just start with what we think is the ordinary meaning of the term. I also think it's, it's highly significant that that's how Congress used the term extend in uh, subparagraph A, clause 2. My, I think my friend admits that that uh, term is used there in a way that requires both uh, temporal existence and continuity, and uh, this is about as close uh, a case as you can imagine for consistent meaning, given that A2 and B1 have the same title, address the same subject to the same entity, set the same standard, and expressly cross-reference each other. I want to get back to a point Justice Kavanaugh made. The the debate here is about whether or not um, the small refinery can get in the door. In other words, it doesn't automatically get an extension. Uh, It just authorizes EPA to grant an extension. And uh, why wouldn't that be something that uh, suggests... uh, a broad meaning uh, of the availability of an extension. So a couple of reasons, Mr. Chief Justice. I, just looking at the at the structure of the statute, Congress, of course, labeled this a temporary uh, exemption. It, it provided for increasingly narrow mechanisms of extension. If you look at A2 and then B1, you know you can actually see the funneling effect. It goes from two years to you know to an unstated period, which EPA has has construed to be one year. Uh, and if you look at the other uh, waiver provisions in the statute, they're they're also relatively narrow. So I thank think- you. Counsel, uh, Justice Thomas. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Mr. Michelle, just a couple of brief questions. Um, The um, Secretary, let's say, going back to a point that uh, Justice Kavanaugh made, that um, EPA could often or was often late in in, uh, completing its work. uh, And here, I'm particularly interested in the study that it was required to have done by the end of uh, 2011 uh, or the beginning of 2011. What if it were late and the temporary uh, exemptions expired? And then it implemented the rule, let's say, it it provided for the extensions a month later. Would those be considered extensions or would we, or renewal? How would you deal with those? Justice Thomas, yeah, that's, uh, I do want to stress the the study was completed in time, and so all of these uh, extensions under A2 were, in fact, continuous as as a practical matter. Uh, I I think your question really highlights that Congress expected them to be continuous as well because the study was due at the end of 2008, and the initial exemption extended through the end of 2010. Um, I I have to confess, I'm not sure I've I've thought about what would have happened in the hypothetical world if, if EPA had not, or if uh, DOE had not gotten that study in on time and the initial exemptions had lapsed, uh, I, 
do think that would not be the ordinary meaning of, of extension. And then the question would be whether the, the context of the statute so clearly uh, compels the availability of extensions that you'd have to, to look otherwise. But, but I don't think that uh, that's presented here. Uh, in your uh, definitions that you provide uh, for extend in your, in your brief, they seem to assume uh, words like continuance or continuation, which seem to suggest that at some point there was a, a termination or an interruption and then a resumption. Uh, do you have any that preclude, con- that, that assume continuity? Well, Justice Thomas, I think that there's a definition on page 66A of the uh, Court of Appeals opinion that does include the word continuity. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure the dictionary is a complete solution here. I, what we're relying on really is more uh, what the Tenth Circuit called dictionary definitions plus common sense. Uh, and I think Justice Kagan's example uh, was a good one. There are many others. Uh, you know, I think if you were at a hotel at a hotel on vacation and they said you can extend your stay for a discounted rate uh, and you said, well, great, we'll come back in three years, I think they would say that's not what we mean by an extension. Uh, and I, I think that's by far the more natural understanding of the term in common parlance. So do you think, do you agree with Petitioner that um, it's context-specific uh, or that context is very important? Absolutely, Justice Thomas. And that's why I think A2 is so important here. I mean, that is by far the most closely related provision in the statute, and it requires both a temporal extension and continuity. Thank you. Justice Breyer? Uh, good morning. I mean, talk about common sense. This is a marketable rights program, isn't it? I think uh, it is. And uh, uh, they sell the rights to pollute more or to you know, use less ethanol in the marketplace. As I read it, it's a classical such program. The characteristic of such program compared to a tax is with a tax you know the price, but you don't know the amounts. Marketable rights, you know the amounts, but you don't know the price. Now, I think anybody would have knowledgeable would have thought that from what I've read here. And so no one would know if we go out two or three years, which small refineries will find hardship and which won't, and it'll change from year to year or two years to two years. And it would be, to me, a very peculiar statute which gave uh, uh, rights in such a way that when uh, it changes, as it will change all the time, in and out, in and out, in and out, and they don't know who they're giving it to, and they don't know when they'll qualify, and they might qualify time A and time B. And so uh, from the point of view of a marketable rights program, your interpretation seems to turn it into a kind of chaos. Now, what do you say? But Justice Breyer, I, I don't think there's chaos here. Uh, there was, of course, c- complete clarity that the uh, blanket exemption was available for the first five years. That wouldn't help. It wouldn't help, you know, because six years out, the price of getting the marketable right goes up 30 percent. And now a whole new set of uh, refineries qualify or it goes down 50 percent. And then those, the ones who have been getting it are out because they're not in hardship anymore. I mean, that's normally the way such a program works. Maybe it didn't work that way here. But you're the one who would know, which is why I bring it up. Right. So, Justice Breyer, a couple of points. I think if Congress wanted to create a freely available exemption that would serve the purposes you've just described, 
it would have done what it did in subsection 07. That was the section that Justice Barrett mentioned to my friend at the end of his argument. That allows for a freestanding waiver of the volume requirements. And Congress instead uh, took a much more roundabout path here by creating the initial blanket exemption and providing for... Why is that roundabout? As you read it, I understand how you read it, but it seems to me paragraph A1 could be read as follows. Temporary exemption. The requirements of paragraph 2 shall not apply to small refineries. That's the exemption. Until calendar year 2011. That's the temporary. Okay. And now we go down to the next one, and it says the, the, uh, where there's economic hardship. Uh, uh, the, the, what will happen is the requirements of paragraph, well, there's a study, and then it says uh, that the, the exemption under Clause 1, two more years. The exemption was paragraph 2 didn't apply. And then it says later the exemption of paragraph A will apply where there's disproportionate hardship. I mean, I don't have a problem reading it that way. You could read it many ways, but that seems reasonable. So, Justice Breyer, I think the big problem with that is that you're cutting out until calendar year 2011. Sure, that's the temporary. The sentence describes the temporary exemption. The exemption is what they say. You don't have to use uh, your exempt. I think the problem with that reading, though, is that in B1, it directly references back Mm -hmm. to the exemption under subparagraph A. And there's Mm -hmm. simply no language in subparagraph A that can be freely granted. That, if Congress wanted to do that, it would have done what it did in subsection 07, where it said exactly what you just said, which is uh, a refinery can petition for a waiver of the volume requirements with no time requirements. Justice Alito? Well, my concern here is exactly what you've been discussing with uh, Justice Breyer, uh, or at least it's along the same lines. Is it true that the price of RINs fluctuates quite a bit? It is, Justice Alito. All right, well, uh, tell me why the scheme then that you're proposing is one that Congress would think is sensible. If a small refiner is able to comply for a number of years, uh, but then is unable to comply because of the fluctuation of the price, why, and, but would be able to comply again after that year, why would, that, why would Congress want that? small refinery to be forced out of business. So, Justice Alito, I do want to make clear that we don't think they'll be forced out of business, and I I think that's an important point because that would really raise the stakes beyond where they actually are. Uh, I also think it's important to note that EPA's longstanding position is that a refinery can recover the cost of compliance through this RIN program. I think, but even if you you didn't accept either one of those, at the end of the day, this is a statute that's aimed at transforming the fuel supply, and uh, ultimately, it, it is necessary to bring all of the small refineries into compliance. That's, after all, I think what Congress meant by a temporary exemption that can be extended only under certain circumstances. So you think this is a sunset provision? I think it's in some ways a a particularly generous sunset provision in that the five years is the only clear sunset after 2011, but then small refineries that can show they need it for longer can keep it for longer. The ultimate result is, I think, something of a sunset, uh, but that's exactly what you would expect from a temporary exemption. 
Well, if it's a sunset provision, isn't it a rather strange type of sunset provision? I've never seen a sunset provision like this. I, I don't think it's a sunset provision in those terms, but there are other you know, uh, areas of the law where someone can continue to uh, receive exemptions or, or extensions of a particular status. Visas, for example, you can come into the country on a visa and continue to extend it, and you might say that that's a sort of sunset program in the sense that once you no longer continue to obtain the extensions, you're sunsetted, and it'll happen at different times for different people. I don't think that's a particularly unusual concept. What do you think is the standard that the EPA applies under B? So it's disproportionate economic hardship. Uh, okay. What about what are these other economic factors? So that you know, I think that, that just uh, indicates that the EPA can look beyond the four corners of the DOE study, and uh, I think in the um, sealed appendix, there's a, a pretty good look at what uh, EPA looks at. It's, it's a wide variety of, of financial information, um, but uh, but ultimately, it's geared toward determining whether the small refinery has disproportionate economic hardship. How do you account for the fact that the number of uh, extensions or exemptions has varied quite a bit from year to year? So, Justice Alito, there, quite candidly, uh, as, as we mentioned in the brief, there, there were a number of statements by individual members of Congress or committees of Congress that said in pretty clear terms they wanted more extensions of uh, the exemption. And uh, EPA, uh, I think, complied with that. Uh, and it took uh, this litigation, which was the first litigation presenting this question, for uh, the Tenth Circuit to come in and, and read the statute according to its text and, and persuade the agency that it actually couldn't do what it had been asked to do so many times. Justice Sotomayor? <clears throat> Counsel, um, I'd like to go back to something you said to Justice Alito. You said that um, this is not going to close, not going to cause uh, small refineries to close. Please explain why. Sure, Justice Sotomayor. I think if you look at the history of the RFS program, the vast majority of small refineries have complied for, for many years, including petitioners in this case. And that includes years in which they have sought hardship relief under this provision and had it denied. EPA denied about 18 petitions between 20. 13 and 2015, and as far as we know, only one small refinery went out of business uh, after that. It's also notable that other refineries that don't fall underneath the 75,000 uh, barrel per day threshold that's in the statutory definition for small refinery have complied all the way back to 2006, and that's true even of refineries that have 80,000, 90,000, you know, throughput that's not all that different, and it doesn't really present qualitatively different economics than, uh, than the refineries face. Here and, and finally, there is flexibility built into the RFS program. As we've mentioned, there are waiver authorities. Justice Barrett cited one. Uh, there's also an important provision in O5D that allows a small refinery to carry over a deficit. Uh, in other words, falling short of its volume requirements for one year. So if there's a particularly hard year, uh, they can rely on that. I'd also note the Energy Policy Act that adopted this. Uh, the, the, the RFS had other provisions that help refineries, including small refineries and getting special access to oil from federal lands. And, of course, we are sensitive to the COVID-related hardships that small refineries are suffering, uh, but the federal government has, has expended a lot of COVID relief that uh, can help them in their capacity as businesses and maybe more importantly stimulate the economy to boost demand for, for fuel, which will help them going forward. Thank you, Council. 
Justice Kagan? Mr. Michelle, in thinking of your conversation with Justice Breyer, I mean, it strikes me that there are two possible ways to conceive of the congressional purpose here. And one is Mr. Keisler's way, um, which is that it was, is supposed to be a safety valve. It's supposed to allow small refineries that are having difficulty in any given year. It might be this year. It might be 10 years from now uh, to have a way out. Um, and the alternative story is the one that uh, you just suggested, which is that this is really conduct forcing. Um, uh, it's supposed to be that refineries change their uh, methods of proceeding and get into compliance at some point. So how do we choose between those two different ways of understanding what Congress's purpose is? Sure, Justice Kagan. I mean, I think we do have a better understanding of the purpose, but uh, to start with the structure, I would look at, for example, if you read A1, A2, and B1 together, you really can see this funneling effect. So A allows uh, or creates an exemption for five years. B, uh, A2 creates uh, a mandatory exemption for two years, and then B1 uh, allows the exemption for an unstated period, but EPA has made it one year. A applies to all small refineries. A1, A2 applies to just the category of refineries identified by the DOE study, and B1 is case by case. So I think if you read the statute that way, it, it sort of exudes the funneling effect uh, that's, that's consistent with the underlying purpose, which uh, you know, was to change the, the fuel supply. I think the, the D.C. Circuit's opinion in the Americans for Clean Energy case makes that clear. Uh, I think the, the, the legislative and, and executive back Round makes it clear the statute was enacted at a time when the United States uh, was dependent on foreign oil, uh, and Congress and the President thought it was important to uh, to reduce that dependence for national security, economic, and environmental reasons. Thank you, Mr. Michel. Justice Gorsuch. Good morning, Mr. Michel. I'd, I'd like to address with you the point I, I discussed with Mr. Keisler about footnote six in his reply brief, and whether there's a continuity requirement in A which might shed some light on whether we think there's a continuity requirement in B. Is he correct that it would be possible, uh, would have been possible for a small refinery to receive an initial two-year exemption or exemption in 2008, fall out of, lose that exemption in 2010, but then regain it in 2011? He's not correct as a factual matter, Justice Gorsuch, and that's for a reason I think you may have suggested in your earlier question. Uh, EPA's 2007 regulations, the initial ones implementing this program, defined the relevant calendar year as 2004, and then the 2010 regulations defined the relevant calendar year as 2006. That provision is actually a vestige is still in the re- in the regulations, and it's at 31A of, our, of the uh, appendix to our brief. So. Uh, because they were defined by fixed years, uh, there was no falling in and out of, of the exemption in the way that... that well, why, wouldn't that why, why wouldn't that have been possible, um, given that we'd be looking at different years in 04 and 06? Well, well I mean, as a, as a practical matter, that, that 
certainly didn't happen. I, I no, think, I understand. I understand factually it didn't happen, but conceptually could it have happened? Yeah, I, I think it could have happened uh, because if EPA had, particularly if EPA had interpreted the, the statute differently, but as a factual matter. Well, no, no, just interpreting it the way they did. The fact that we're looking at different years, at least, doesn't that at least open the possibility that there might be uh, people falling in and out of the small refinery definition, even under the period of covered by A, and therefore you might have, at least conceptually, it was possible for there to be some discontinuity. It, it is conceptually possible, although I think it's uh, probative that EPA adopted, ultimately adopted regulations that didn't uh, allow that to happen. It didn't happen. I got it. it. Okay. All right. And then um, just to return to a couple of questions that the Chief Justice asked and that I'm curious about, um, you, if I understood you correctly, you, you're arguing that uh, the ordinary meaning of the structure and the purpose here support your position um, but you're not arguing that the text is unambiguous. That's right, Justice Gorsuch. Okay. And so uh, in, in circumstances like that, we, we might in, in another world have applied Chevron, but you're asking us not to do so here, right? Right, because I think that uh, there's nothing to defer to in that there's no uh, agency interpretation of the question presented that, that you could grant Chevron to. And, of course, as, as one of your recent opinions, I think, pointed out, it would be atypical to grant Chevron deference to an agency when it no longer holds that position. So, so it, it, part of the reason why you think um, it would be inappropriate is because it, it's just a, a preamble, but you also indicate even if it were applicable, uh, you, 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 you would disavow Chevron deference in this case because, as you've indicated in the press release, you don't intend to continue to enforce the, the 2014 regulation. Both of those things, and I would also add, it's not so much even that, that it's in a preamble, it's that it's also, at best, an implication in the preamble that doesn't... Okay, but, but even, if it were, even if it were not in the preamble, even if it were absolutely clear, you still would ask us not to apply Chevron. That would, be our, that would be our position, although here I think it's a lot easier because it's not in the rule and it's not even clear in the preamble. And part of the reason why you don't want us to apply it is because... Um, <clears throat> Uh, it would be a mistake to p- supply deference when the agency has changed its position. I, I think that's right. As, as the court observed in Epic Systems, you know, one of the traditional justifications for Chevron is deference to uh, executive officials, uh, you know, and, and requiring accountability. And it, it would be a strange understanding of accountability to defer to uh, an executive interpretation that's not the one the executive has now. Justice Thank Kavanaugh. You, Mr. Michel. Uh, thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning, Mr. Michel. On Mr. Keisler's second argument in his brief, which is his lead argument today, the argument that the extension, the word extension, is uh, temporal but uh, does not have to be continuous, uh, just to set up how I'm thinking about this and then get your response, uh, you, you admit it's not an unambiguous word. I think Congress uses extension sometimes, uh, even when something's lapsed. Uh, we have the examples, COVID and other examples. Uh, you make a big deal about ordinary usage, but I'll give you three instances in my life where ordinary usage goes the other way from what you, what you say. So sometimes uh, when you're teaching and you have a 5 o'clock p.m. due date for a paper, you know, uh, after the due date, you will get an email entitled extension request. Uh, you grant a, a paper extension afterwards. Or when a, you use a sports contract example in your brief, but oftentimes if the contract ends at the end of the season, 
in the offseason the player signs a new contract that will be described by most people as a uh, player extends for two more years. Uh, or if you let your print newspaper subscription lapse for a time and then you start it up again, you'll tell your family member or friend, oh, I extended the paper uh, uh, subscription. So I, I think ordinary usage also, like congressional usage, in my experience at least, uh, doesn't tell us exactly. So how do we break this? And the two things he emphasizes are at any time, and that that's, there's no sunset date. So I want to get your responses to that. And then also on the purpose and context, if we get to that to help break what, I don't want to say tie, but to figure out what Congress was thinking about with the word um, or what it was doing with the word extension, your position is that Congress wanted small refineries to have no outlet at all to essentially go out of business, whereas the other side's position is simply uh, that EPA would have authority, as a matter of separation of powers, authority to grant an uh, exemption uh, if a small refinery had had a uh, had a um, problem. And it really seems quite implausible to think Congress wanted refineries in that circumstance to go out of business. So, if I can get your response on the at any time, no sunset date, and the implausibility of Congress wanting small refineries to go out of business rather than EPA having authority. Thanks, Justice Kavanaugh. And I think I can maybe fold in a little bit of your first question, too, uh, or your comment. You know, I think at any time means exactly what it says, which is that uh, a small refinery can ask for an extension of the exemption at any time. Uh, but that doesn't define what an extension of the exemption is. So in Justice Kagan's example, I think if th- that renter originally had a lease that said you can extend your lease at any time, I don't think it would work to come back five years later and ask for an extension. I think, as my friend said, the landlord would still scratch his or her head. So I think, although I take How about point 10 that, days later? So I, I, I do think 10 days later I mean, maybe different. Because, I don't think we should base our decision here on absurd, not absurd, but uh, extreme hypotheticals. They're, they're, they're not absurd. They're extreme, though. But like a few days later, you would call that an extension? I, I think you might, but I think that would be because you were running it back in a sort of nunk-pro-tunk sense to the prior. Exactly, exactly. Sure, and, but I, do, I want to make very clear, that's not what the small refineries are asking for here. They had exemptions through 2011 or 2013, respectively, right. and they're asking now for an extension into 2016 or 2017. So it really is Justice Kagan's hypothetical and not the nunk-pro-tunk uh, extension. Uh, on the purpose and context, I think if you thought they were going to go out of business, this would be a tougher case. Uh, they haven't gone out of business in the past when many small refineries have complied. Uh, but, of course, the purpose of this program was to drive change in the, in the fuel market. Drive change to the point of driving small refineries out of business? I don't see that anywhere in the, in the text or, or history. Justice Barrett. Hey, Mr. Michelle, um, I want to make sure I have a handle on what you mean by ambiguous. Um, you've said a couple times that the word extension is ambiguous, and, and I would have thought that by that you mean that it does have several definitions, which we've gone over during argument and in the briefs, if you look in the dictionary, but that in the context of this statute, it's clear which of those definitions, or reasonably clear that there's a better indication of which of those definitions is the right one. Am I understanding your argument or correctly? 
Yeah, I think that's right, Justice Barrett. I, I don't mean to resist. If, if the court wants to say that our, our reading is unambiguously correct, I'm not here to tell you not to say that. I'm just saying uh, I, I don't think you have to go that far if you don't want to. Well, I mean, not necessarily unambiguously correct, because, you know, we're here arguing back and forth about what it might mean. But I don't think you mean to say that we could not glean which way in which Congress was using the word extension when we look at the context, correct? I, I, Absolutely, I agree, Justice Barrett. Okay, and as for Congress not um, plausibly intending to send the uh, small refineries out of business, is it possible that Congress just didn't anticipate that they wouldn't be able to comply, that it just grossly underestimated how easy it would be for small refineries to meet the standards? Uh, I actually think they might, if I understand your question correctly, they might have underestimated how easy it would be. As, as we explained uh, in, in the brief, it turns out that because of this RIN trading system, small refineries are able to uh, recover the full cost of their compliance because the marginal cost of RFS compliance is, is priced into the market price for refined fuels. Now, I'm not saying that Congress necessarily would have known that at the time, but as it's turned out, there's very little risk of going out of business because of the way the program has... has well, been. but they say that they're then at the mercy of the RIN market, and it can be very expensive. But putting that aside, let's just posit that, you know, what Justice Kavanaugh was saying is right, that your reading would drive some small refineries out of the market. Which way should that cut? I mean, because if we think that Congress might not have anticipated that at the time, what are we to make of that? So I, I think, you know, Congress, of course, included a, a number of provisions that added flexibility that would keep small refineries from going out of business. But I, I do want to answer your question directly. I suppose at the end of the day, if 15 years later there, there were one or two small refineries that couldn't comply because they couldn't find a way after 15 years, I think that Congress would have accepted that outcome because it was trying to change the, the fuel supply. But I, I want to stress, I don't think that's what's going to happen, uh, in part because of the other safeguards that Congress wrote into the program. Thank you, Mr. Michel. A minute to wrap up, Mr. Michel. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, the key statutory provision here has an ordinary common sense meaning. To obtain an extension of the exemption under subparagraph A, a small refinery must have an exemption under subparagraph A. Petitioner's contrary reading is counterintuitive at best. This court typically applies the ordinary meaning of statutory language unless there's a good reason not to, and here there's not. Allowing extensions only for small refineries that maintain an exemption fits with the words and structure Congress adopted, not alternatives it could have chosen instead. The ordinary meaning reflects the statutory goal to drive the market toward renewable fuels while giving small refineries a significant but limited benefit and requiring continued compliance including with the flexibility that Congress wrote into the RFS, will promote its objectives without causing the harm petitioners fear. The decision below should be affirmed. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Morrison? Mr. Morrison? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, extension may have other possible meanings in different contexts, but its ordinary meaning to lengthen or prolong, is the only plausible meaning in the context of this statutory provision, and petitioners have offered no compelling reason to depart from that ordinary meaning. EPA's authority is therefore limited to prolonging the duration of the exemption under subparagraph A, not creating new exemptions episodically. EPA's unauthorized carve-outs have resulted in billions of dollars of lost revenue to biofuels producers, 
devastating the rural economies anchored by the renewable fuels industry. Petitioners' suggestion that there should be a permanent safety valve to excuse them from their compliance obligations is belied by the text and structure of the statute and is antithetical to Congress's goal of increasing the volume of renewable fuel in the nation's transportation system. Council, can uh, EPA grant an extension of the time to file for an extension? Your Honor, yes. Uh, EPA could um, could grant an extension of the time. Uh, it could file. It, it does allow a petitioner to file um, a, a petition at any time, um, and that is very broadly worded in the statute. Well, I mean, let's say that uh, the um, period is due to expire on you know January third. And on January 4th, um, uh, the uh, representative of the refinery comes into EPA and said, here's my application for uh, an extension. Uh, Sorry I'm late. Everybody had COVID. Uh, Is EPA going to give him an extension so that, for example, the period would or wouldn't be continuous? Your Honor, what, what the continuity we need is between the exemptions or the extensions of the exemptions. The capacious language at any time would, I believe, allow EPA to entertain a petition after December 31st. It would, it would in a nunk-prunk-tunk manner, revert back and allow continuity in the prior exemption. Well, I don't know why that gives the other side all they need. I mean, right? I mean, what you could say they can get an extension if they ask for it half, you know, half a year later, right? That's correct, Your Honor. So why couldn't they? Why couldn't they ask for the extension a year later? They could ask for the. Not, extension, I'm sorry, I'm being confusing. An extension of the time to apply for an extension. They, they, uh, Your Honor, with the phrase at any time, they really don't need an extension for the submitting the petition. We take that language at its face value that Congress meant um, to speak very broadly. The critical thing is that for a refinery to be eligible for an extension in a given compliance year, that refinery has to be exempt for the year preceding the compliance year. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Thomas? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Counsel, uh, just uh, to uh, satisfy my curiosity, what's uh, your interest in uh, petitioner not receiving uh, this extension? Well, I, I, Your Honor, I, I, I don't have a, uh, a personal interest in a petitioner uh, not receiving the exemption. No, I other mean than not you personally, but your uh, clients. Your Honor, it's because it was granted after a lapse in the exemption. There well, is I understand only that, one. But how does it affect? How does it affect your clients? Your Honor, where there are exemptions given from compliance, that affects the demand for their products. It affects the demand for ethanol, which in turn affects the price of rents, the price of the fuel that they sell. There have been almost. Four billion gallons over the last few years that have been lost to small refinery exemptions. That has had a devastating effect on the renewable fuel sector. So your interest is that you're you are not selling enough ethanol. Is that what I'm hearing? 
Your Honor, it is that the, the ethanol um, that would otherwise be demanded um, to meet the congressional levels would no longer be um, produced and provided by the ethanol uh, companies. That's correct. And Congress's objective in, in achieving those and in making sure under O3 that those levels are ensured to be met by the agency, it, it's critical that the agency provide um, those volumes to make sure the statutory levels are met. But your interest is actually in securing the market for your product. Your Honor, it, 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 it's in making sure that, yes, we are going to be providing ethanol, uh, blending into the nation's transportation level uh, system at the levels Congress contemplated in O2 of the statute. Thank you. Justice Breyer? Same question about marketable rights. I mean, when you read about the first two extension, first extension, it doesn't say 2011 and then two more years. It says 2011 and at least two more years. So they could have given 50 more years as far as that wording is concerned. And I guess they wouldn't want to do that because things change all the time. You don't know what the price of the RAN will be. No one knows. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. Now, I've just given you an excellent reason why you would lose. Because they want small refineries to not have to do this. And who is a small refinery with disproportionate hardship varies tremendously, possibly, across the years. So what do you point to to show I'm wrong? What do you point to in the legislative history? What do you point to in the context in which this was enacted that says, no, they're not worried about the fluctuating prices and changes. They're worried only on phasing this out. At your point, what's your strongest evidence? And I do look at the legislative history, if you have some there. Your Honor, all refineries had 15 years to adjust to the levels that ultimately peak in 2022, and they had time gradually, giving them all the time to build the capacity. And that is explained in Senate Report Number 10974 at 6. Secondly, small refineries had a five-year blanket exemption plus an additional possible two years to invest or adjust. Um, and thirdly, I would say that the RFS compliance costs, as the government points out, turned out to be recoverable anyway which would adjust for the fluctuations. If it did become more expensive in a given year, those compliance costs would still be recoverable in the cost of the product sold. And then finally, I would point to the equities of the situation that in 2015, only 7 out of 137 refineries were uh, under the exemption. So about 95% of the refineries in the country had complied, were meeting their, or making their proportional contribution to the RFS demands. Justice Alito? Justice Alito? Justice Sotomayor? Counsel, um, I'd like you to finish... I'm sorry, uh, Sam. Go ahead. uh, Let's say there are two refineries. Um, Refinery one gets um, an exemption in year one, and in year two, uh, refinery 
Uh, number two, um, complies in year one, but needs an exemption in year two. And you would say that the second refinery can't get that exemption. Why is that a sensible scheme? Well, uh, Your Honor, um, I guess that that hypothetical rests on the false premise that a given small refinery suffering a disproportionate economic hardship might not seek an exemption when it could have. But the truth is that all small refineries have every incentive in the world to apply for an exemption in a timely fashion because otherwise they'd have to comply. Moreover, once a refinery has developed a mechanism for compliance, it can actually, as I just mentioned, it can actually recover those compliance costs so there is no disadvantage from one to the other. They also have compliance flexibilities in the nature of deficit carryover, too, if they need so. All right. Thank you. Justice Sotomayor? Counsel, um, both you and I think the government have said that um, as the system has turned out, Congress may not have known that the costs were recoverable. Can you explain that? I mean, what what is odd about this statute is that there are all sorts of jump-off points away from the statute. The government mentioned a bunch of them. Justice Barrett mentioned one in particular, um, the regional effect. Um, But there are all sorts of other outs that the EPA can um, implement. But why would Congress not have anticipated the cost recovery? Your Honor, I, I believe in 2005 and 2007, Congress did not have the information that it later gleaned um, and that EPA provided in analyses that it did on the impact of RFS compliance costs to refineries, small and large. The most comprehensive study came in, in, 20, in the 2015 EPA report by Burkholder, um, and there were other similar reports by Nittel and others that basically found that RFS compliance costs were recoverable in the cost of products sold, small and large. That information was not available to Congress in 20, 2005 and 2007. And I think that's part of the reason why you don't see, you, you actually have this exemption on the books. It's also true um, that the Department of Energy, when it first came out with the, the study in 2008, its initial reaction was that the further extension was not necessary because it began to see what Burkholder saw in later years that the costs were recoverable. So I think that's right, um, Justice Sotomayor. If, if it were the case that Congress could have seen back in 05 and 07 what it learned in later years, we might not have any exemption on the record. Thank you, Counsel. Justice Sotomayor? Oh, I'm sorry, Justice Kagan. Uh, Mr. Morrison, uh, I want to go back to your conversation with the Chief Justice about um, what uh, at any time means. You said it was quite capacious, but of course you don't think it goes so far as to uh, give Mr. Kaiser what he wants. So could you explain to me what that term means? What what does it include and where does it uh, stop? Yes, Justice Kagan. At any time speaks only to the simple procedural question of when a small refinery can submit its petition. It says nothing about the substantive requirements for getting an exemption extended. Congress added that language at any time 
Simply to clarify that small refineries can submit petitions outside of the time-limited provisions in A1 and A2. For example, small refineries can and did submit petitions in 2011 and 2012 when the Department of Energy did include them in its study. And I believe this distinction between the procedural question as we view at any time and the substantive discussion about what's required for an exemption extension is clear from four things in that language. First is the ordinary meaning of may at any time petition. Secondly is the nearest reasonable referent canon of statutory construction, which places at any time next to petition. Third is the undisputedly continuous nature of the adjacent provision in A2. And lastly, the overall purposes of the RFS, which would be undermined by an open-ended and intermittent exemption. Thank you, Mr. Morrison. Justice Gorsuch. I have no questions at this time. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, Mr. Keisler said if you win this case, um, the, it won't add a drop to the volume of uh, renewable fuel into the market. Do you agree? Uh, no, Justice Kavanaugh, we would not agree. Um, we submitted uh, evidence with our briefs uh, that indicate um, that small refinery exemptions have caused a substantial drop in the price of ethanol, roughly $2.3 billion in losses due to reduced revenues during the recent period, about 162 million gallons. That's in the Richmond Declaration attached to our 10th Circuit brief. I would also point you, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, to the state's amicus filing here, which details um, the economic harm that has been and will be continued uh, upon the, the biofuels industry if these exemptions continue. Right. The economic harm as distinct from the volume into the market. I'll let Mr. Keisler respond to that if there is a response on rebuttal. Another question, picking up on Justice Breyer's questions. seems like we have um, a choice whether to interpret this as giving the agency flexibility to give the exemption or kind of a uh, prohibition on granting the exemption. Um, you know, why... why when faced with this kind of provision that doesn't have the kind of sunset language that you would often see, wouldn't we interpret this scheme to the extent there's ambiguity to give the agency uh, flexibility whether to grant exemptions given the uh, hardships that could result? Justice Kavanaugh, I believe we, we, we do begin with the ordinary and common meaning of extension. And, and although there may be other definitions possible, um, the ordinary and common meaning is simply it remains to prolong or enlarge. I think there are three contextual clues that bring us to the fact that this was meant to be a, a temporary um, exemption extension. The first is the simple language in B1, which limits EPA's authority only to extending the exemption in A1, which Congress said would be temporary and time-limited. The second is, uh, in the same way Congress used extension in the rest of Section 211, all throughout the Cleaner Act, when it uses extension, it does prolong continuously the duration of something pre-existing. And I do believe, lastly, that if con continuity is clear in the words Congress did not choose, that if it had chosen reinstate, restart, renew, or taken the most simple path of just saying that someone could petition for an exemption, 
that would lend toward a non-continuous Thank you. Uh, interpretation. Thank you. Justice, Thank you. Justice Barrett. Mr. Morrison, I have a question about the word temporary. So it's part of your argument that in context there's a continuity requirement to the word exemption. But so long as they are continuous, can these exemptions go on into perpetuity? Your Honor, it, theoretically, it, it, if a, it is possible that a small refinery um, could submit a meritorious uh, petition each year um, that shows it, it, it had a disproportionate economic hardship, as long as, again, um, it, it was eligible to receive that exemption that year because it had an exemption extension in the preceding compliance year. We think that there's still going to be a funneling effect that would remove that possibility of something indefinite, though. The, the harm would have to be disproportionate. And again, what we're doing is still extending an exemption that Congress itself said would be time-limited and temporary. Well, if it's not really temporary, however, in the sense that, you know, you're, you're saying that for practical reasons, maybe they would phase out. But as you read the text, as I understand your argument in any event, as you read the text, there's nothing in the text that stops um, a small refinery from continually getting exemption year after year. So it seems to me if temporary doesn't really mean temporary, then maybe it doesn't cast as much light as you say on what exemption means either. Your Honor, I think that's part of the reason why uh, temporary um, was not in the header for B-1 and it was um, in the header for A, because ex extensions under B-1 could go on for a period of year, um, years. Even though B-1 references back to the initial temporary exemption and a disproportionate economic hardship would create a funneling effect, you're correct that there's no specific limit on the number of continuous extensions that a small refinery may obtain under B. A minute Thank to you. wrap up, Mr. Morrison. Petitioners have given this court no compelling reason to depart from the ordinary meaning of the word extension, and it should not do so here. The context in which this word is used in the statute confirms that this ordinary meaning is also the only appropriate and plausible meaning. Consequently, any extension of the temporary time-limited exemption for a new compliance year must be preceded by an exemption in the prior compliance years. The statute's purpose of enhancing energy security through the increased production of biofuels further precludes petitioner's assertion that a compliance exemption Congress provided only on a temporary basis could somehow become permanent. We therefore ask that you affirm the Tenth Circuit's decision on this issue. Thank you, counsel. Uh, rebuttal, Mr. Keisler? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, both of my friends assert, as if it were a matter of fact, that we can simply recover the cost of this program by raising our prices. We can't. In the applications we submitted to the EPA, we said that our margins in many cases were zero or negative once the costs of this program were taken into account. And this cost is the single largest operating cost we have. But we don't, we don't want the court to decide as a factual matter whether we can pass through these costs or not. We're just asking the EPA to look at that evidence as part of our submission. But, of course, they won't if, 
for this entirely irrelevant uh, uh, issue of continuity, they don't get to consider our applications at all. And the issue of continuity doesn't depend on whether we're right or they're right about whether or not these costs can be passed through. Now, my friend from the government began by saying that this won't doom small refineries to go out of business. But the key point is that if he's wrong about that, and if it did, He's saying that EPA's hands are tied and that Congress meant EPA's hands to be tied and never meant it to be able to grant relief even in that circumstance. Instead, it meant that we would be funneled out of the market. These are the realities that we explained in our applications. Many small refineries, as Congress recognized, cannot afford the blending infrastructure, and so they have to rely on the marketable rights, the credits and the RINs, and, and the, as everyone has acknowledged, the prices for those are wildly volatile. And Department of Energy found that having to pay those costs will constitute disproportionate economic hardship when those costs exceed the cost of blending, as they generally do. The price of these credits can jump up and down as much as four or five times or more in a single year. So if they plummet one year and we can comply, we are then completely foreclosed from relief in every future year, even if they go up 10 times. And also, if somebody somehow gave us the blending infrastructure for free at our facility, that would not solve the issues we have because the issues are structural. And Congress did understand and anticipate that, Justice Barrett. That's why they wrote this whole separate subsection about small refineries. Many of these refineries are located in geographically remote areas. They depend on pipelines to reach their markets, and pipelines don't take blended fuel because it's corrosive to pipelines. They don't own retail gas stations like their larger competitors. They can't compel the gas stations to take their blended fuel, and the gas stations often don't. And they have to sell a larger proportion than the rest of the industry of diesel because they're in remote areas. And diesel doesn't take blending to the same degree as the others. So there are all sorts of reasons why Congress understood that small refineries needed this different provision, and that's why they authorize them to seek relief at any time based on hardship. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. <laughs>